Today on the History Factory Podcast, we are joined by author and New York Times columnist James B. Stewart, author of Unscripted, The Epic Battle for a New Media Empire and the Redstone Family Legacy. I'm your host, Jason Dressel, and welcome to the History Factory Podcast, the podcast at the intersection of business and history. Last month, Succession, the highly popular show on HBO, concluded after a four-season run. And for those of you who may be jonesing for more over-the-top stories of business and family dynamics coming together to create toxic dysfunction, you have come to the right place, my friends. James B. Stewart is here to talk about his new book he co-wrote with his colleague Rachel Abrams at The New York Times. And this may be a book for you to pick up for your summer vacation. And look, in in general, I'm not really into the corporate scandal genre as a category to just kind of fester in. But I think what's compelling about Unscripted is how it really is going to be a document, an artifact, in, in my opinion, that authentically reflects a lot of themes of business and to some degree, uh, the values of America in in early 20th, uh, 21st century America. James and I had a really wonderful conversation about that. We give you hopefully enough insight and context so that you have the rough contours of the story that unfolds in the book. But we also discuss more broadly many of the themes that the story covers, and that includes changes to the media and entertainment landscape, the impact of the Me Too movement in the C-suite, corporate governance, succession planning, and even the vulnerability of the elderly and of the ultra-rich. So, uh, lots to cover. Let's jump right into my conversation with James B. Stewart. James is a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist who is currently a columnist for the New York Times and a professor at the Columbia Journalism School. He is not only the author of Unscripted, the epic battle for a New Media Empire and the Redstone Family Legacy, but also the blockbuster Den of Thieves, as well as several other books, including Deep State, Tangled Webs, Heart of a Soldier, Blind Eye, and Bloodsport. Without further ado, James B. Stewart. James, welcome to the History Factory podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, oh, thank you. Pleasure to be here. Well, um, James, we have uh, we have clients who come to us who want to um, sometimes publish their own histories, and sometimes they express the desire uh, that that their history will uh, sell well as a book. And we often grimace at that because, in general, we find that business books that perform well in the marketplace more often than not are are typically because there's a pretty significant conflict. And I think that that would be uh, a, a reasonable um, re- reasonable uh, way to, uh, to, to characterize uh, some of the events that take place in, in Unscripted. Um, the book and the story has been compared to, to Succession. So I'll just start with uh, Unscripted versus Succession. Uh, which one is more far-fetched? Yeah, well, it has been compared a lot. And I think there's, I've read a few interviews that have suggested that 
uh, when gathering raw material for succession, the writers did look to the, the Redstone Paramount story for inspiration, as well as the Murdochs. I think it's been more commonly compared to the Murdochs, but there is a lot of the Redstone story in succession. I just as you you know, as an aside, I deliberately did not watch succession until after I completely finished, you know, writing unscripted and we had turned it in. And only then did I watch start watching succession because I didn't want it even subliminally affecting the real life story that I I was you know, I was trying to get down on paper. But in terms of what's more far-fetched, um I think, well, first of all, Unscripted does have the advantage of being true and meticulously fact-checked. So everything in there did happen. However, it has elements that are distinctly different from succession. And in a way, I think make it more, if it were fiction, people would say, oh, no, no, that cannot possibly have happened. I suspect succession couldn't go down some of these paths because it did seem maybe too far, too far-fetched. But primarily... Um, I would say you have two elements in Unscripted that are, are really quite dramatic, one, and they're related. One is the attempt by the mistresses slash fiancé of the billionaire Sumner Redstone to wrest control both of the power of his empire and his money, which goes on for, you know, is a big part of the story in Unscripted. And you don't really get any of that in succession. And secondly... There's the decline, the mental and physical decline of Sumner Redstone uh, as the story unfolds. And in the book, we get, you know, fairly deep into, you know, how serious that was and what the effects were. There's a whiff of that in succession. But again, that is not explored very much. And then I I would finally say not in the unbelievable category, but just from a dramatic point of view, I think Unscripted has an advantage in that well, there's some really reprehensible behavior in there and characters, just as in succession. There is kind of a hero, our heroine. There is, um, you know, Sonny Redstone's daughter who is like thrown into this shark tank of Hollywood, not, having no idea what she was getting into and having to, you know, fight one battle after another to emerge on top. So that the narrative arc of, of the two stories are quite different. Yes, and I, I one one thing that struck me as I was thinking about asking you that question was that I think that the two mistresses in Unscripted, uh, which again is a real story, I think that they were less qualified than any of the characters in Succession. But uh, and it's also interesting to your point because um, you know that I did think about that as well as if this was a fictional account who is the hero of the story and it was inter- and it's interesting to hear you say that it really is it's it's sherry uh, sherry yeah, uh well, you know i just also would mention you mentioned the, the two women the mistresses who moved in i mean they are they're fantastic characters i i'm i have to say succession missed a real opportunity there like i you know we were um we we sold the um the streaming you know movie rights to the to the book and i was chatting with the producer and i was we were looking at the pictures the photographs in the middle of the book and i said look here are the two women sydney and manuel and i said look at them here and it's a great picture of them and they were very flamboyant and wore you know incredible like couture outfits and i stuff i said the costume designer is going to have a field day with these two because i mean again i just had one picture in there but you know, there are many pictures on the internet and, you know, I have to tip my hat to them. They they had, a, shall we say, a lot of fashion flair 
Yes, yes. So, well, that that only helps the story. <clears throat> so, how, how did the story come about, James? I mean, you, you wrote this book, obviously, with uh, with your co-author um, Rachel Abrams. Both mm-hmm. of you are are um, at the New York Times. So, you know, how how, how did this come about? Uh, my understanding, obviously, is that you you both were sort of working on kind of different different sides of the story, and then then it converged. Yeah, right. I mean, I was. Um... A columnist. I I, I wrote a, a weekly business oriented column, and sometimes I did longer features as well at the Times. And Rachel was working in the media uh, group, but I didn't really know her. I and I got interested in the story really after the chief executive of CBS, Les Moonves, was was forced out over Me Too issues. And I'd known him for a long time. He was. A legendary figure in the media world, you know, had been had an extremely successful career. CBS did really well. He took it from the fourth rank network to the first, and then they stayed on top for like ten or eleven years, which yeah, was unheard of in the broadcast world. And he's a very charming guy. Um, and this war had broken out between him and Sherry. I, I might have written a little bit about that, but then the the really surprising turn of events was that he was forced out over what seemed to be some articles in the New Yorker exposing his, you know, really terrible behavior with women. But I got some calls after that. That's the kind of thing I wrote about, you know, boardroom maneuvering and, you know, CEOs losing their jobs. And so I uh, I got a, a call from some sources and they were beginning to give me information to suggest, well, the, the story of his ouster was much more complicated. And they had begun to give me some text messages between um, Moonves, a talent manager and a woman that his name had never surfaced, but who he had allegedly assaulted many years ago. So I was, I was pursuing that and had a confidential source who was giving me some of this information. And one day, Rachel just stopped by my desk. I did not know Rachel. I mean, I'd seen her in the office. I, I think I would have been hard pressed to say what her name was. And she said, you know, I hear we might be working on similar things. And I said, oh, what? And she had done a story about how CBS was investigating what went on there and said, you know, I have a a source who's come forward who has access to a trove of documents. And I quickly realized that some of those documents were the very same text that I was getting. And I said, oh, yeah, I think we are working on the same story. And that then launched uh, kind of our working together. And her source has now come forward publicly. There, the source appeared in an episode of the New York Times, the Daily podcast, maybe a month ago, mm. and publicly identified herself. So um, we don't have to maintain her confidentiality anymore. But she, at considerable risk to herself, came forward and provided what was, an, you know, an unbelievable um, trove of documents of all kinds: uh, internal emails, uh, texts minutes of boardroom meetings, um, communications among, you know, various executives, uh, testimony given to the CBS lawyers from most of the main participants. I mean, it was a writer's dream. And out of that, we we ended up doing this relatively long story called um, If Bobby Talked, Bobby being Bobby Phillips, uh, this beautiful actress that um, who, when she was quite young, Moonves had assaulted in his office. Uh, and it was really trying to show here's really why Moonves was forced out. And that story got a lot of attention. And we were immediately, a lot of people were saying, oh, my God, you should turn that into a book. And 
we thought, well, yeah, because there was a lot, we had more information from these documents. And also we had unanswered questions, which is something I always look for when considering a book project, which really mostly went to more about the board behavior mm. and this strange mystery that like, why had Moonves led this corporate attack to strip Sherry Redstone of her family control at the same time he knew he had these skeletons in his closet. I mean, that to me was like a conundrum that needed an answer. So th- that's how we launched the book, kind of looking into that. And I was I was thinking that arc of the story would really be kind of from the lawsuit to Moonves getting ousted. But it didn't take very long before we realized, oh, the story is it's deeper, it's bigger. If you could get the origins of that story, you had to go back much yeah. further. And particularly the beginnings of the deterioration, mental deterioration of Sumner Redstone, and then the emergence of those women, because they were not just, you know, paramours living in the mansion with him and taking his money, but they were, excuse me, actively maneuvering to gain control of the CBS Viacom Paramount Empire. So, yeah. what, so let's so let's go it. back on that. Yeah. yeah. So I'm I'm glad you 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 brought us here, James. So let's go back to that origin story. Mm-hmm. And you know, where does all this begin? Who is Sumner Redstone? And how? I mean, that was the other thing that just was that struck me was this was a um, obviously a very talented uh, business person. Um, you know, ethically compromised, we'll say. Um, but he, uh, in terms of his bi- bi- biography and, and, and where he begins, uh, you would not have predicted that his career ends in Hollywood. In Hollywood. <laughs> so yeah. how, how, how does he get from, from A to Z? Well, he had very humble origins. I mean, it's a kind of a classic American success story, at least in its early phases. He was you know, born in very modest circumstances in Boston. Uh, he got, but he was smart. And his his mother, I think, played a very influential role, was very, um, you know, really drove him and, you know, was extremely ambitious on his behalf, even though they had very little money. Um, he got a scholarship to go to the Boston Latin School where he excelled. And then he, because he was the top student there, he got automatic admission into Harvard. And he, you know, sailed through Harvard in, you know, I think he completed the degree requirements in three years. Uh, he learned Japanese. He really was, you know, intellectually a, a force to reckon with. He was very brilliant. He worked obsessively. And this is worth remembering. As far as anyone could remember, he never had a date. And he had later said in his memoir that he couldn't because no, no girl that he would bring home or no one he would ever go out with ever passed muster with his mother. And I think that probably cast a long shadow over the rest of his life. But anyway, in terms of his business career, the family had owned two, eventually owned two drive-in movie theaters on the outskirts of Boston. Again, you know, the lowest, you know, um, circle of the entertainment industry. And he parlayed that first into the concept of the multiplex, the suburban multiplex, the many shows at once, big parking lots using that cheap land in the suburbs. And he used that to then go on some aggressive raids using junk bonds. And, you know, he he just went from one deal to another, ultimately getting what was the, the Viacom empire, a lot of cable channels, many of them well-known, MTV, Nickelodeon. Then he got the CBS uh, broadcast company, which was a big feather in his cap. And then maybe his crown jewel, he thought of that way, the Paramount 
studio, which at the time owned both the movie studio and the Simon & Schuster Publishing Company. And he was 76 years old by the time he had rolled all this up into a big, giant company, which he called Viacom, and then descended in Hollywood. He ended up divorcing his wife after a tumultuous relationship with many years, had terrible relationship with his children, very succession, like pitting the children against each other, always competing with them. But then he moved to Hollywood at age 76 as, you know, a mogul. And that's where the story really takes off. So, so he, um, so he, he, he arrives on the scene and, and, and he also, didn't he also acquire, uh, didn't he also do the blockbuster deal in the nineties? He did. He did do the Which, blockbuster deal. Nobody really wants to talk about out. that. He was smart. Yeah. He wasn't always, he wasn't uh, foolproof. And the, you know, blockbuster was a, was a terrible deal. And they ended up, you know, unloading that, uh, at a great loss, but, um, so yeah, not all. And he, he had another, there's a, a games company called Midway that figures in the story because his daughter, Sherry was opposed to that and he was intent on doing it. And, you know, it's interesting with Midway, you know, video or games, you know, computer games, especially has become a massive business, bigger than the movie business. And he was kind of right about seeing that, but the Midway just floundered and, you know, never, never did really well and went into a downward spiral. And again, that they had to get rid of that at a massive loss. So he was not infallible. Yeah. So, so, so he, he, at the, at the tender age of 76, he, he's rolled up all these companies into this incredible enterprise where he's managed to go from starting as a drive-in movie theater owner to basically owning the companies that produce that entertainment as well as mm-hmm. a, a whole nother um uh kind of portfolio of, of of mostly entertainment companies uh and obviously CBS so then so so who, who who then become kind of the characters you know you mentioned there's 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 Sherry there's the two mistresses so how how do all these kind of characters kind of fit into the puzzle well in the family um he had a son and a daughter, Brent and Sherry, and he, you know, he and his son were at loggerheads almost from the beginning and in a very succession-like way. He just, Sumner was, you know, cruel and humiliated his son. And the son finally just threw up his hand and said, I, you know, I'm not going to have anything to do with you or the company. And he sold his his stake, I think it was a little over $200 million or $280 million, and he vanished, basically, never to be seen again publicly. And lives on a ranch in Colorado, but he had, he had some children who came back into the story. And then his daughter, Sherry, who also, as you will see in, in the book, he tortures her on a regular basis uh, throughout her career. But, you know, amazingly, she sort of tenaciously hung in there, although she came close also to selling out and, and just, you know, cutting all ties at the family. So he had a terrible relationship with his two children. Then once he divorced his first wife, the long-suffering first wife, and moved to Hollywood. He had a second wife briefly. He dumped her. He took up with his Hollywood producer friend, Robert Evans, a notorious womanizer. Uh, and he started dating, if, if you want to call it that, with these various women. And his grandson, Brandon, who was Sherry's uh, a younger son, moved out there to have a job with MTV. And he was with his grandfather a lot. And then part of the story is, the saga of, you know, Sumner, the billionaire grandfather, was always trying to steal Brandon's girlfriends and dates, and in many cases did, and, you know, showered money on them. 
And it was Brandon out of finally, you know, at the end of his rope and desperate, connected his grandfather with uh, the millionaire matchmaker of TV fame. And she was the one who put, who introduced him to this woman, Sydney Holland, and they were quickly engaged and she moved in. And then this other woman, Manuela Holt Hertzer, had been somebody else he dated. He met her at Robert Evans's house. And she said, can I, can I move in while I'm renovating my house? And she did. And then, of course, the house renovation went on forever and she just stayed. So the two women were living in, in there with him. So they're the, the two women. And then the other two characters you need to know about are Les Moonves, who was the chief executive of CBS, and Philippe Domont, who was the chief executive of the Viacom Paramount uh, part of the empire. And so at this point, at age 76, and then as the years went by, he got older, Sumner was, you know, very involved. He called them every day, but he was the chairman and chairman of the board of these companies, but he really let them run the companies. And especially um, Moonves was doing such a great job. He he really didn't have to do much except watch the stock go up. Yeah. But but as the story kind of unfolds, I mean, I mean, well, just, just one question I wanted to ask is, you know, your career, as you noted, is largely been focused on covering corporate governance and i think we would agree that you know cor- corporate governance in this case was not exemplary um you know how how did the behaviors of the family which are the majority shareholders and then ultimately you know executives like like les moonves and then the sort of you know lack of control of the board i mean how how does this start to affect the the performance of the of the businesses well, you, as you can imagine, um, it did not help. The, um, you know, the, the basic scene here was, you know, here you have an aging billionaire and he's surrounded, all of these characters to varying degrees were maneuvering to get their hands on his money and power. And, and that's a very succession-like element of the story. And I think you see over and over again, people who have a fiduciary responsibility to others, maybe they're lawyers to their client, um, maybe they're executives to the shareholders of the company. And you see them behaving in ways that, you know, pretty transparently are about them and about their getting money and power and ignoring the interests of the people who supposedly they're charged with taking care of. And there were many ways that this interfered with the the progress of the business, but probably the most conspicuous was the entertainment industry in this period of time was about to undergo and then started to undergo the biggest transformation probably since the advent of talking pictures. And that is the digital revolution, the advent of streaming, the direct-to-consumer model for distributing entertainment. And that's been a sea change. And while all of this was happening, they were all fighting. And the boards of Viacom and CBS were consumed with trying to, you know, either effect a merger or avoid a merger um, to the point where, as I mentioned earlier, Les Moonves and the CBS board led this lawsuit to try to strip Sherry Redstone and Sumner of the family control of the company. Now, they had an interesting governing structure because the Redstones did not own a majority of the shares, but they did have a majority of the voting rights. This is not an unusual situation anymore. Most of the big tech companies have a similar thing. Many family media companies have this. 
And shareholders have long said, well, that's not really fair. But that is has been a long tradition. And so they sued to try to overturn that. And that, again, that litigation, enormously expensive, um, you know, bitterly contested, was a massive distraction from, you know, the company performance. So CBS, you know, Viacom was, did terribly. You know, Paramount, the studio was was terrible. I mean, um, it, you know, the results, the stock just went down, 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 down. And CBS fared better, but it was it was becoming a dinosaur. You know, the broadcast network and the cable distribution model was was slowly dying, and you could see this was going to happen. So the results are that I think this were really quite destructive for the shareholders. Mm. What what were some of the biggest surprises for you over the course of this project? Well, certainly one of the biggest surprises was, um, you know, the, as I mentioned, the the mistresses, if you want to call them that, in the in the house were, you know, not only did they manage to get Sumner to transfer by our calculation, well over one hundred fifty million dollars to them. By the way, that, of which they still that, have. That incident in the book where there's that single day where there's that yeah. sum of money that is that is transferred into their accounts was just sort of jaw dropping. Uh, <laughs> jaw dropping, and they they got ninety million dollars in one afternoon. But I mean, that was you know surprising. That's kind. I mean, I sort of thought that's what was happening. But what really struck me was they came very close to actually gaining control of the companies. I mean, everyone said, oh, that could never happen because there was this irrevocable trust that actually, um, you know, controlled this. But they, Sumner was doing whatever they wanted. And they were consulting lawyers. All Sumner had to do was put trustees on there who would say, for example, sell, let's sell CBS to these two women for $1. And then they would have had it. And, and the, the trustees were completely under the control of Sumner. So it could have happened, and they were they were well on their way when this again part of what you know I don't want to call this a soap opera, but part of what's you know stranger than fiction is the way the whole thing blew up. That you know Sydney Holland, the fiance, started having an affair. Now it wasn't just that she had an affair; she had an affair with a former con man who had gone to jail. And who, who had also, by the way, been an actor in a soap opera since you mentioned it. Yes, exactly. I mean, <laughs> I haven't made this up. I, I didn't know anything about this character when I started the book. And then, you know, Rachel ended up, you know, making a huge contribution by spending a lot of time with him. He was a writer's dream because he had kept every email, every text, every photograph, every video, and he turned everything over. He he was He was a kind of person who... Yes, he'd been a, a liar and a thief and had done bad things in his life, but he was amazingly forthcoming and honest. And some of the stuff he told us, we didn't believe at first, but then we would check it out with second and third hand sources. It all turned out, everything we could check turned out to be extremely accurate. So um, he's he was the one, I mean, it's all in the book, but he, Sumner found out about the affair and went crazy and kicked out. Sydney, and then Manuela moved in to try to take advantage of that, and then she ended up getting kicked out. So they, if it weren't for this bizarre affair, I think they would be the, <laughs> they would be the chairman of this company today. Crazy. Well, I, I found myself as much of a monster as, as Sumner was. I found myself feeling, and this was an interesting twist. I don't know how intentional this was on on your and Rachel's part, but. 
I found myself being empathetic to him and being like, you know, this this dude's in a bad spot. <laughs> I mean, he was just yeah, no, I mean, you know, disconnected. And when you think about the ability for, I mean, it's a real probably theme of what's happening in American life, right? This guy's a billionaire, but you know, when you think about older people and how vulnerable they are to being manipulated, um, that was a really interesting kind of component to this. And I found myself feeling feeling sympathetic to him. Well, I think, you know, I, I'm always happy when readers have different, you know, reactions. And, and, and I, and again, I think it is, it's, it is complicated. These are not cartoon characters. They're, they're multidimensional. Um, and I think, yes, it's easy to have some compassion for him, but I think one of the kind of cosmic themes that emerges here that I found fascinating was Sumner was always going around saying he was never going to die. And, of course, we all knew he couldn't really believe that, did he? Uh, but he had confided in one of his many girlfriends that he part of the reason he said that is he knew that he'd been had done many bad things and that he was going to face a reckoning. And he didn't want to do that. He didn't want the last judgment because he felt he would be sent. to He said, I'm going to hell anyway. So, mm. you know, why shouldn't I just do whatever I want? And it, it occurred to me that. Sometimes, you know, you don't have to die to get the last judgment in, in his case. It was like he did end up in hell. He got the punishment that he feared while yeah. he was still alive. He didn't have yeah. to die to have that happen. And yeah. however you want to think about that, I, I found that um, a really, you know, kind of profound insight into what's ha- what happens to people sometimes in, in life. And you're right, the, 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 the family eventually sued these women for elder abuse, but what was, whether, and then they settled that, so we didn't really get a verdict on that. But I, anyone can read what was going on and see, this is terrible behavior. And he was crying all the time, he was miserable, they cut him off from his family. I mean, it's, it's really, that is really a very sad chapter at the end of his life. James, what do you think the moral of the story is? Well, another, I think, important theme is that, okay, he was a billionaire. He could hire the best lawyers, the best doctors, everything. And yet he was so vulnerable. And in part, I think because he was so rich, it it tilted the scale so that when people became close to him, they couldn't help but think, oh, wait a minute, what's in this for me? And so none of that ended up protecting him from this this terrible fate. And so I, this is not a new idea, but the idea that, you know, great wealth brings you happiness or anything even close to it. If you need to be reminded of that, this is a great story. And I don't want to be simplistic about this. I'm not going to pretend that, oh, poverty is the road to happiness. I I understand that people need a, a, a sort of a minimum standard of living and that a certain amount of money can definitely enhance someone's quality of life. But where this line is, I'm not sure, but when you're when you're really rich, and I mean in the billionaire category and up, it's a different world. And I I don't I think people people who want to be billionaires should really be careful about what they wish for, and because the incentives change so much. Um, I guess it's true of people with great power as well, and with wealth comes great power, but. You know, you're surrounded by people who never give you an honest answer. It's all they're always t- telling you what you want to hear. In and in the end, because it's they're like trying to get their hands on on some of this. So I think it's a tremendous cautionary tale about the risks 
of great wealth and how it can be exploited. Mm. You've covered business for for a pretty long long time. Um, you know how, how how do you think this book? You know, when, when someone reads it twenty five years from now, you know what what will it kind of portray in terms of what some of the major themes and issues that um, you know large corporate enterprises were 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 facing in the first quarter of the the twenty first century. Well, this this all unfolds at a pivotal time in. Uh, sort of American cultural history and in, in corporate history as the so you know the so-called Me Too movement was gaining traction and more and more of these abuses was coming to light. I mean, I in my years of covering um corporations, they seem to me in many ways, they were they're a little bit like medieval kingdoms, in which the the monarch, the, the CEO, had almost no constraints. They they could do whatever they wanted. There was so-called corporate governance, which was pretty much a joke. The boards of directors charged with protecting shareholders were picked by the CEO usually, who was also usually the chairman, and were very beholden to them. And even then, even you, okay, you get a token woman, you get a token minority on there, they were marginalized. There were a handful, as you see at CBS, a handful of aging male cohort directors who really wielded all the power. And, you know, Les Moonves did whatever he wanted and he got paid hundreds of millions of dollars for it. And that was just sort of taken for granted that in this world of big companies, that the CEOs were almost always men. They were almost always white men and they did what they wanted. I mean, to me, one of the most shocking revelations was that you know, for adult listeners to this thing, Les Moonves had an employee working in his office whose job was to give him oral sex whenever he wanted it. Which on, is on the which payroll. is insane. I mean, it's as like, a as an executive who works with you know Fortune five hundred companies and you know has you know I've I've spent my fair amount of time on on the executive floor of of companies like this, and I can't imagine it just. I mean that. I, I mean, I'm not naive, I'm, but I, I would expect that's the kind of craziness that happens in a dysfunctional family-owned private company. I mean, <laughs> the fact that I mean, you know, it's just that was insane. I know, and I think it's it, it just shows how far this had gone. That you know, there were no checks and balances here. So just as you know, centuries ago, you know, you know, England rose up and you know imposed a constitution on the king. I think women here, in this case, we're, we're rising up and saying, you know, we're, we're not going to accept this and we're not going to tolerate this. We're not going to be exploited in order to get roles in Hollywood or get promotions or, you know, whatever else was going on out there. And by the way, you know, this the, the problem isn't over by any means, but this created, I think, a sea change in sort of how boards looked at, at governance and um, the sort of blindness that they were always taking towards the activity of, of chief executives. So, I, I mean, there's still a lot to be done. I mean, it, it was striking to me in our work how many victims of sexual abuse are still very afraid to be named or to come forward, even now, because they fear some kind of damage to their career, some kind of retribution. So it's not like this problem has been solved, but it has been brought to light. And I think more broadly than putting just sexual abuse aside, 
The idea that the CEO can do absolutely anything with impunity, I would like to think, has come into question and that boards are now going to be exercising a, a little more oversight and imposing some checks on that behavior. Yeah. And if, would this book have been written 20 years ago? No. Um, I mean, much of the material we got, and, and by the way, one of the things that I was drawn to here is that because of all this material, the documents we got, you get a, I mean, an unprecedented look at how boards really operate and what they were saying to each other. 20 years ago, CBS would never have investigated the CBS over an allegation of sexual abuse. I mean, these things were, it wasn't like they just started yesterday. I mean, they were, you know, quietly, you know, swept under the rug or some payments were made. I mean, look, there's, before Harvey Weinstein came forward, there were, you know, all those Fox News people. And, you know, there's there's a long history of this, of being kind of quietly swept under the rug. And by the way, the reason our confidential source came forward, and she talks about this in the in this daily episode, is she thought that CBS would investigate this and then, again, bury it, you know, say, okay, we, we did the investigation and, you know, and we've taken appropriate steps. End of story. We're not going to disclose what we found out and nobody's really going to be held accountable and you really won't see how this was all covered up in the company. And she didn't want that to happen. And that I, that would never have happened 20 years ago. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's an uh, it's an amazing uh, piece of piece of work uh, that you and your colleague put together. So thanks for for sharing the story. And I, as as a business um, historian, from the perspective of just the back to the the core of this, that this is a true story. One of the things I've been particularly kind of uh, amused by, I guess, in in the last few years, is how companies and brands have sort of become part of popular culture and entertainment. And, you know, one of the things that that has sort of struck me about that is, is you know, you, there's obviously been a lot of, you know, fictional stories like Succession, like Silicon Valley and, and many others. But now there's this emergence of real companies and real brands um, that are portrayed in now, you know, entertainment. Um, but they're still not, in a lot of cases, actually factually true stories. And, and mm-hmm. it's really kind of blurring the lines of what's real and what isn't. And what's really neat about this story um, is that it's it's all true, but it really does read <laughs> like a like a fictional saga. Um, so thank you. So should we be expecting a, uh, are we going to see Unscripted on a streaming service sometime in the future? Is that actually going to happen, well, do you think? Knock on wood, I hope. I don't, it's, um, everything is stalled at the moment because of the writer's strike. But somebody has acquired the rights, and um, there seems to be a lot. There was a lot of interest, uh, so I'm, you know, I'm hoping that yeah, maybe it'll all come come to the small screen or the big screen, whatever big your streaming set is. Um, awesome. Well, we'll have to have you come. We'll have to have you come back. If that happens, and uh, we certainly wish you wish you the best of luck with that. So, thank James you. Stewart, thank you so much for your time. It's a pleasure. Bye. That's it for this episode of the History Factory podcast. If you're interested in learning more about this insane story that James and I were just discussing, I urge you to read or listen to his and Rachel Abrams' book, Unscripted, The Epic Battle for a New Media Empire and the Redstone Family Legacy. It's a really entertaining and informative book 
that reads like a prestige TV streaming series, but the story is all true. So check it out wherever you shop for books. Thanks again to James B. Stewart for joining us. I'm Jason Dressel. Be well. Be well.